Welcome to episode 405 with my guest, Mae Wilkerson. Um, Paul Gilmartin is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com and mentalpod, also the handle. You can follow me at on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I was meditating this morning, uh, also known as uh, closing my eyes and thinking about myself for 20 minutes. And the first thing that popped into my mind was I had read an internet comment uh, not towards me, but just in general. And somebody was insulting someone else with the, addressing them as snowflake, which has kind of come to be a, um, I'm sure most of you know, a way of um, insulting. Uh, generally, people on the right use it to insult people on the left, you know, insinuating that they're weak or sensitive or you know, worry too much or uh, too politically correct. Um, and while I agree that uh, on the on the far left, there are definitely people that, you know, want the world to cater uh, to their every whim so they don't ever have to feel uncomfortable. Um, but I identify as a as a progressive progressive and I, and I tend to think of myself as um, sensitive and compassionate. Um, something about that comment just kept coming up in my mind while I was meditating and it just really got under my skin and I was imagining myself debating this person. Um, and this person referring to me as Snowflake. And I, and I was thinking, what? Because I, I imagine that person would probably also look at me and think I'm a snowflake because I talk about my feelings. I'm not afraid to cry. I've been to therapy, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I like to think I, I try to accommodate people through uh, the words I use and how I address them. Um, and I was thinking, what would I say to somebody? And of course, I was picturing myself on Fox News with Sean Hannity sitting behind me as this person called me Snowflake. And I was thinking, what, what, what would I say to that person? Because I wouldn't want to escalate something that I think the problem that we find ourselves in in this country right now and probably other countries as well is that discussions have kind of devolved into trying to prove the other person wrong instead of trying to find a middle ground and my first instinct would <laughs> would be if the person was smaller than me to challenge them to a fight and say, let's, you know, take it outside. Uh, or, uh, look, we each get one punch and, uh, let's see who, who's the snowflake. And I know that's just my ego, afraid of looking weak or being made fun of. And so I wouldn't say that. 
And I thought, what would, how can I have compassion for this person without being a doormat? What would I say? And I thought, you know, I would probably want to express the idea that most people who are angry are using anger as a way to not deal with fear and pain inside themselves. I know that's been the case for me, uh, certainly in the early part of my life, uh, and even still today. Um, and I think a lot of the people who would call somebody a snowflake are typically the kind of people that don't seek out therapy, that don't really reflect on their inner life, look at what their part might be in things, don't look at what scares them or what makes them sad. And I think I would say that people who are sensitive are actually braver than the type of person who never self-reflects, never asks themselves, why am I angry? Why am I sad? Why does this person bother me? What, what might I recognize in myself in that person that upsets me? That, those are the things that I try to do today. And to me, that's, you know, I think the world would be better, a better place if we all did that instead of getting into this wanting to dominate each other and, and to win. Uh, you know, I, I think both political parties are awful in this country. And the real loser is those of us who have been swindled into thinking the lesser of two evils when we go to vote is a victory. And I think that's where a lot of the real anger is. I don't want to be, I don't want to be angry. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a person like in their 80s that's just really cranky and angry. And I think, God, 80 years on the planet and you have still not done any kind of emotional work on yourself. That is, that is the worst kind of prison. You know, being a hostage to your own anger is the most unnecessary prison. And yet it's the default where most of us go to. It's, it's, where I was for the first 40 years of my life. And I try when I see somebody who's angry instead of engaging with them and escalating and trying to win, I try to be grateful that I'm not them because I know what it was like to be them. And I can be them in a, in a heartbeat. I can still go to that place where I just want to go for the jugular with somebody. But I guess what I'm saying is I'm I'm proud to be 
sensitive. I'm proud to be somebody who goes to therapy. Because what's, what's more chicken shit? Never looking at what scares you or stopping and turning and facing it and saying, I'm not running anymore. I'm tired of running and I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm ready to face it. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. A suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> I am here with Mae Wilkerson, who's a stand-up comedian, half of the podcasting team behind uh, the podcast called Crazy in Bed. You guys talk about mental health, and uh, you're both forthcoming about your your own struggles. And uh, Mae is here visiting California from uh, Brooklyn, which is where where you're based. And you seem to be relaxing. You you were saying. Getting getting out of Brooklyn and uh, enjoying Los Angeles in the spring. Relaxing is a word. It's a verb I never thought I would try, but ever since I, there's something about LA that changes my entire like experience of everything. And you're also staying in Santa Monica, which is that helps. <laughs> near the ocean yeah. and yeah. it's weird ever since i started living this really bougie life i've been so happy <laughs> i don't know what it is what could it be oh my god the mcmansion people are right <laughs> it's like ever since i became an heiress i'm just feeling so much more relaxed <laughs> um no i'm cat sitting for some people who make more money than i do in santa monica but it's been really really nice you were raised in massachusetts i'm from massachusetts Small town, um, very privileged, and um, very anxious. Yeah. Very anxious little kid. Only child, no siblings. That's what only child means. And a lot of um, a lot of time in my head. What were were either of your parents anxious people, or are they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you don't know. I didn't know that that's what an anxious meant or what anxiety was, even because I grew up around my family, so I had nothing to really compare it to. Right. Um, I know now that the anxiety level is yeah pretty high in my family compared to other people, but I yeah didn't realize it at the time. My mom said that she always felt bad because she was anxious when she was pregnant with me. 
and she feels like that's why she passed it on to me, which I'm sure played a role, but there's got to be a genetic component. I, I would give as much weight to the post-birth yeah, exactly. anxious environment. I love that some parents, like that's such her, her way of looking at it. It's like, yeah. it must be my fault when you were inside me. I yeah. made you wrong. What are some of the issues that you struggle with? Um, I have um, food issues, drinking issues, any... Any anything uh, that makes me feel really good, um, I have an issue so with. So you have an addict brain. I am an addict. Okay. That pretty much sums up a lot of the problems. Give me some snapshots from childhood to kind of paint a picture of how little May... <laughs> became the raging nightmare <laughs> of how, medium-sized May. Yeah. How, how she dealt with her environment. Yeah. Um, coping mechanisms, building up little coping mechanisms from a young age. Um, I had a, a Baba and which is, God, why am I admitting this? But you know what? Oh, well, and it's a, it it was like a, a rag that I would carry around in my mouth and my mom would have to obsessively clean it every single day. She'd have to boil it in water. And finally I was like, I got to go to college. I got to stop doing I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, it's weird. I can't seem to lose my virginity. Um, humor may also be a coping mechanism. Uh, or you think? Attempts at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I carried around this like wet rag in my mouth until kindergarten. Like the whole rag just hanging out of yes. your mouth? Yeah. Hanging out of my mouth. Sometimes dragging on the floor, which is hence the excessive boiling. It was like, I never, I never adapted to not having a pacifier and I never really have not had a pacifier. I've always just had different things that have substituted that role. Would you chew on it when it was in your mouth or? I would suck on it. I I, I have a lot of anxiety in my jaw, which I didn't realize at the time. You know, I was four. What what the hell was I anxious about it for? I don't know, but I, I carry a lot of anxiety in my jaw. So my my jaw would clench, and that's why I need to have, I need to be chewing on something. Mm. I find sometimes when I'm online, I, I won't notice, but my jaw is tightening and tightening and tightening. All of a sudden, I'll open my mouth wide, and my jaw will crack. And I, the only time I really notice that is sometimes when I'm online. But wow. back to there your, was no internet then, yeah, yeah, Isn't that crazy. I was still anxious. There was no Facebook, and I was still anxious. What? Give give us an arc of the coping mechanism, <laughs> starting with the Baba. Straight from Baba to meth. No, um, it was Baba, and then it, oh God, and then it was hot apple juice. I liked to drink hot apple juice. It warmed up into my grave um, as a How kid. How often? Every night, I couldn't fall asleep without it. I also couldn't fall asleep with it. Sleeping was a big issue. Um, but were, there, the, were there recurring thoughts as you lay there trying to sleep? Yes, mm-hmm. racing thoughts. Like what? Um, One of the greatest hits. <laughs> um, well, they've changed so much. You know, back then it was like, will anyone on the playground talk to me? You know, it, I, I was really, I was terrified of social 
uh, alienation because I guess because I didn't have any siblings and so I was really lonely. So I was just really desperate for connection and it was hard to get because I didn't have siblings. So I didn't have great social skills and I was too, I wanted to be, I was so lonely and I wanted to be friends with people so bad that it would, it would like almost creep people out. Yes. I was just going to say desperation is, is not, not cute, not cute at any age, at any age or, whether somebody's looking for platonic friendship or romantic friendship, there's it feels like so much responsibility to the other party. Yes. As if I well, if I let this person in, they're going to devour me. Yes. Totally. Totally. And that's how I felt. I I had yeah. I just I would like. I really wanted to be liked so badly. That's so heartbreaking. This sad, anxious little girl. I know. And it's like you. There's a white picket fence. What is your issue? You know, you have a dog and a cat. The cat was really mean, but... Yeah, but that's just stuff. I know. I know. I was real... I wasn't... And there was parts of childhood that were amazing. I had, like, I was very creative, and I was always, you know, putting on these plays, and um, I had these big, huge worlds where I would invent, like, everyone, you know? It was like a whole... I had a whole town, and I remembered everybody's names. What were some of the names? Bob. Bob was the post office. Oh, they were squirrels. Like, okay. there's this whole town of squirrels, and they just all had, like, boring suburban names like Bob and Martha and George, and they would just, like, go about their lives, and I would act out different ones. Sometimes I would let in... I had some friends, and I would let in a friend, but it was almost like the fantasy worlds came first. And were the, the, the squirrels were the characters in this imaginary town? Mm-hmm. And were they squirrels from your backyard or just imaginary squirrels? They were imaginary squirrels, but living lives and going to grocery stores. So they were personified. Gotcha. And would they be able to talk? Would they say things? Oh, yeah. Like what were, do you remember any of the things that the characters would say or recurring themes? Oh, my God. Um, No, well, it it was, yes, it was a lot of, um, a lot of wish fulfillment. For, for me. So there was a lot of like traveling, a lot of uh, the circus. There was always the circus was in town. There, it was like every, there was, everything was big and exciting. And it was like, I really wanted a world beyond the small town where I grew up more than anything, just desperately. And, and that was my way, I think, of like creating it. And by extension, would it be fair to say that not just a small town, but the house where you were raised, that yeah. it felt kind of uh, desolate emotionally? I had a harder time as an adolescent. And as a kid, most of my memories are pretty happy. I think, I th- I don't know. It's hard to know. It's okay. hard to know because it's like kind of blurry. But but, it, but there was anxiety. It was there. more fear. And I always felt like, my, I mean, my dad worked a lot, but I always felt like my mom was kind of loving. Um, and I, I never really knew where that fear came from. But I did definitely have like a lot of emotional entanglements with my parents as I got older. Um, just like being an only child is so intense. I, I, I can't imagine. Before we get to that, um, I just wanted to, to say that... Um, I think parents can absolutely be loving or giving it their best shot at being loving and and that doesn't make 
somebody growing up with issues or fear or emptiness, uh, I, I don't think it's a failure necessarily on anybody's yeah. part for that. And one of the most difficult things is to hold the ideas to dissonant ideas at the same time that there could have been love and there could have been abandonment or pain yeah and that's one of the hardest things because i think we often feel like we're throwing somebody under the bus if we say this area of of my life i didn't get what i want but it's not about blaming that other person it's about saying how can i repair that part of me so that i can get to a place where I'm not trying to fill this emptiness with cheese popcorn on a Thursday night. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're breathing deep. What's, <laughs> what's, what's going on? No, that just, that really struck a chord. Cause I, I, I protect people. So it's, it is sometimes like, it's hard to, it is hard to open up because sometimes I'm like, my parents were great. They did everything. Cause it's like, they're my whole family. Yeah. And it, it sounds like they were, Loving. Who? Yeah, they were. They were. They must. They must have been. But you know, it's and they were and they are now, and they're so so supportive now, which is amazing. Um, and I think in ways that they were not necessarily equipped to have, like a very emotional child, which um, it's hard to imagine now that I'm so like reserved. But um, I was very emotional, and they did the best they could. You know. But yeah, it's 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 tough to raise an anxious child. I have friends who have anxious kids and they they will like email me and call me, which I think is so lovely that they're trying to break the cycle. What do you think if if somebody had come up to you at any age, like if you could time travel as you and go back and talk to yourself at any age, what would you like to have said to to help little you um i think it's okay that you're oh man paul i know i was gonna cry but we're like seven minutes in (laughs) um it's okay to be to be different it's okay to be to be weird you know it's it's good it's gonna help you one day people are gonna love you for that it's hard being a weird kid it's hard it's not it it was not accepted not where I grew up and I felt like I was always trying to put myself to make myself somebody else because like the town that I grew up in it was like you had to be very athletic you know you had to have the the cool dress at the bat mitzvah you had to shop at the limited too you know and I just couldn't, I couldn't pull those things off. And so I always felt like there was like something deeply wrong with me because I got picked last in gym class and like I shopped at Bradley's, you know, they have great sales. The limited two is terrible. Like I would never bring my kids there. You know, you should have told her that too. What? Uh, Little May. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I forgot about her. I completely forgot about her. Yes. (laughs) I was thinking about the limited two. Sorry, May. Anyway, you're going to be fine. <laughs> the limited two sucks is what I would tell little May if I could go back in time. And if you said that to her, what what do you think 
little little you would have said um or even if just adult you had arrived in her life oh god i think i would be very relieved i think i'd be very relieved just to know that like i i'm okay like i turned out okay I think that I really felt as a kid, like, so scared that there was something deeply wrong with me just because my experience of the world was so different from other people's. And now that I'm an adult, I don't, I'm like, oh no, I'm the same as everyone else. You know, it's just like, as a child, we didn't have those tools to, to talk about them. Yeah, vulnerability wasn't modeled. It's it wasn't, and us. it's not really cool as a kid. Like that's not that you're being able to show your feelings is not valued. It's it's the opposite. You want to be cool and and aloof. Yeah, and it's and it's used as ammo for other kids to yes to yes, which I did experience some light bullying and. I mean, even the little amount that I experienced, like, I'll take with me forever. And it just breaks my heart to think about the kind of things that some of my closest friends went through. You know, it's like... Can you share some moments? I mean, from my own experience? Either. um, I mean, I just... I I remember kids would make fun of me because, um, because I cared about the environment and when i walked down the hallways they would just be like save the whales <laughs> because i did i it was it was it was not whales it was manatees which i was trying to save because they're in a lot of trouble and i was really worried about them <laughs> and it did start to save the manatees club and i was the only member so they were like valid in there making fun of me but you know, it's funny, as you're sharing all this stuff with me, I'm, I'm thinking the irony that you were probably the sanest kid <laughs> in your grade, <laughs> but you, we live in an insensitive world, and yeah. then the ones who react, how any yeah. sensible person with a sense of what's happening in the world would react we are told that we're crazy. Totally. Yeah. And one thing I will say to my parents' credit is that they they were on my team. And 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 I I did feel that way. Like they wanted me to fit in and they they wanted to sort of help me socially. It was like they they got it, but they also were totally fine with me being weird and different, and they like celebrated that. That's great. That must have felt really nice that you could be weird in your own house. Yes. I mean, that to have had, if you had had the opposite of that on top of all of the rest of Mm -hmm. this, I mean, fuck. I know, but at the time, it's 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 so crazy, and this is why I would. I mean, I would love a hookup with my younger self. Like, if you know anyone that knows a guy that can help me get back in time. Because I feel like... <sighs> I, I really wish you'd used a different word than hook up. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that painted a picture that was deeply unsettling. <laughs> but... I meant like a drug hookup. <laughs> but... Doesn't make it better. 
It it is certainly a new branch of pedophilia that has not been explored before. <laughs> Time travel, pedophilia. Time travel auto pedophilia. God, this is going to hit Pornhub by like two days from now. <laughs> God. So go ahead. I couldn't let that pass. No, that's yes. that's so funny. I'm glad you said something because I have never heard the word hookup used <laughs> between you- two. Two people in a way that wasn't sexual. I guess for me, I because I'm such a drug. Like I just went to drug hookup. I'm like, yeah, it's a drug hookup. But yes, that doesn't make sense. What was I saying? If I could say to my younger self, yeah, what and what would your your younger self had said to you when you said that stuff to her? Oh, I don't know. Probably would have like been like bossing me around. <laughs> All right, well, we're playing a game, and you have to go sit over there now. <laughs> were you a bossy little kid? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, so but, the bullying, you were going to give me some moments oh, of the bullying. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yeah, kids used to call me a lesbian. I think part of the reason I had a hard time as a kid, I'm queer. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, I read so straight. And most of my recent relationships in adulthood have been read very straight. So I forget like, Oh no, I'm, I'm queer and I was queer as a kid and that's hard. It's hard to be a queer kid on, on top of all the other stuff. Yes. In addition to the other stuff, I think that there was, I always gender. I, as a little kid, I, if you look at pictures of me, I look. I, I was. I presented as a tomboy, which is partially because my parents were cheap and all their friends had boys, so they would just dress me as a boy. Because, like I said, my parents were kind of progressive and weird hippies, and that was cool with them. But it also, like in my head, I knew I felt different from girls. Somehow, there was something about girls that felt alienating to me like I I didn't know how to be girly and that was hard and I didn't know why but I thought there was something wrong with me and then with boys I didn't really fit in with them either because they were kind of mean and I was I'm was like sensitive and emotional so I mean I did have friends but in general overall with people I had like a few close friends but overall people were hard yeah that must be difficult to not feel like you fit in when when did it dawn on you that gender isn't necessarily binary Ooh, college classes and was that a relief yes college was such a relief um and i kind of like threw myself into the opposite direct like i became very involved in queer in, in like i only did queer activities and all my friends were queer and i was so relieved to realize that that and, and that became the identity that I held on to that felt like it was going to solve my problems. And when you say queer, are you talking not only about your gender expression but also you, uh, your sexuality? More my sexuality, yeah. More your sexuality, yeah. Like my gender expression and my sexual gender and sexuality are are so different. Right. But um, for me, I've I guess as a child when you're not sexual the way that I felt different more manifest as a sense of being sort of not quite like the other girls. Like I felt a little different being different in a suburban town, not the, the worst thing, but not the easiest. Was your, t- 
town middle class, upper middle class? I'd say upper class. I'd say upper or upper middle. I mean, I, I always felt like my family felt more upper middle class, but I'd say in the town there was a lot of like really rich people. Like uber wealthy people. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, God, a lot of this is starting to make sense. Some of the most uptight, anxious people I've ever met super are, rich. are people from super rich neighborhoods. Yes. It's, I think with that wealth so often comes expectations on that kid. And yeah. I know that happens in uh, also in immigrant communities and, and, and places like that where there isn't wealth, but there is this desperate um, emphasis on achievement. Yeah. I think that's the two things that both oh, God. kind of share both the, uh, I mean, when I was, yeah, eight years old, I was probably stressed about where I was going to get get into college. And I don't wow. think that just comes from my family. I think it, it really is like a a, a, t- a class and a, t- and a town, yeah. a privilege thing. The, the town that I was raised in shared a high school with a really, really wealthy mm-hmm. town. My town was very middle class. Yeah. You know, some portions, maybe a little upper middle class. And the other one was upper class to millionaires and i noticed a difference when we melded it was they talked about things so much who had the best stereo how much did this coat cost are those the best glasses i had never had that conversation with kids at my at my grade school and i remember even back then going this is kind of sad and empty but i'll accept this because nobody else will be my friend yeah it's true as a kid you don't have that many options you don't you know there's no yeah there's no facebook it's almost like people having coke coked up conversations we're yeah. like this is really tedious but <laughs> i can't know where this is where i'm we're at in this I room got- <laughs> i'd love to be at the snack table over there but that'd be weird i can't That's leave right <laughs> i can't so I, move i guess we'll uh we'll talk about <laughs> law and order well now i do coke too okay you know i gotta anyway so um so you had that pressure, the pressure of um, feeling different, not having friends. Um, I did have a couple. Of, I had some friends. I had some neighbors. They, they were They were lo- losers. losers. <laughs> objective. I mean, this isn't subjective. This is objective. There was a lot of they like. Were losers. There was a lot of very wonderful parts of childhood that I'm not going to list because it'd be weird. And then we went to a picnic in the park. I actually, I love hearing those moments yeah. uh, because so much of life is light and dark. And Ugh. sometimes I'll listen to an episode and I'll think, oh, God, that's just unrelenting fucking darkness and misery. Where's where's some of the joy that I, I know had to be there in that life? Where's some of the inspirational moments, the, the transcendent moments where this person's soul is touched by something that enhances their life i know people are afraid to talk about joy almost the same way people the most i know i'm thinking about this interview and the thing i'm going to probably feel the weirdest about is like the money thing because it's i just feel weird to it's weird to talk about like money and privilege and i don't know it's it, it feels embarrassing to me somehow I, I don't understand that that you're talking about it or that you came from a place of that privilege. I came from a place of privilege is like embarrassing. Not that my parents were not even millionaires. You know, it was it was just like sometimes I look at 
the overall I step back from my buffet of mental health issues and I and I'm critical of myself. Well, one of the things that I really take exception to is the finger pointing by people who dismiss someone's emotional state because they had material things growing up or because their skin color is a certain way. I will agree with that person saying that if the other person is trying to say, well, here's what I think about the black experience or, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like I, if, I'm, if I'm saying, oh, no, I know what it's like to be poor. It's like, no, you don't. But right. that doesn't mean that I haven't experienced my own yeah. struggles. Exactly. And and so that that's one of the things that really kind of gets under my skin because some of the saddest people I've ever met yeah. are really wealthy people. Yeah. And in many ways, it's an additional hurdle for that person to get better because it's distraction. Yeah. It's so easy to go fix yourself, excite yourself with something new, but in reality, you are still digging a hole yeah. the wrong direction. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression about my family. Um, my dad is a documentary filmmaker, so we're not exactly... Money... Oh, having too much money was never an issue for my family, right. but we were around people for whom it was. Right. And you're right. There is a level of sadness there because I, I would imagine a lot of being a reason that I always identified with middle class is that there's a lot of things that I want that I don't have, you know, travel and nice clothes and comfort. And, you know, there's a lot of things that that I that I strive for. And I can't imagine having those things your whole life and, and never having to strive for anything that to me would be. A level, a different level of sadness, I think. I think it would be, too, because to me, one of the greatest gifts you can discover or achieve in your life is an environment where you can experience meaning and purpose and community. Mm. And anything that distracts from that, whether it's addiction or materialism or anything else, um, is a tragedy in in my in my eyes because knowing what it's like to have a life that feels purposeful and not overly materialistic. Trust Mm. me, I like shit, but I'm not obsessed about it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. If you're listening and you want to Venmo me some cash, I will accept it. I'm all over Zell. (laughs) Mentalpod at (laughs) gmail.com. We love money. Don't get us wrong. But it, it, um, it's not everything. Yeah. And I know that's obvious to, to people, but, My, as my dad used to say, my brain just went to screensaver. These fucking oh. meds I'm on sometimes—it's so frustrating. Um, what do you? What? Ha- it's so hard to know when you're on a medication. Not to skip a whole bunch of years, but when you're on a medication, when the side effects outweigh the pros. I feel like my ever since I started medicating my mental health issues, it's been a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way? Absolutely, yeah. it's a lot of trade-offs. Uh, so this one is. I have a little more difficulty putting sentences together, but I don't have to crawl back into bed at four o'clock mm. in the afternoon because the world is too much. Oh my God. I recently, yes. Oh, what a good feeling. And, and that, do you mind if I ask what medication no. it is? How, mu- how long do you have? <laughs> I'm a on five. T- I'm on five. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. What uh, are you on? Buspar, Wellbutrin. Same. Um, Lamictal, Selexa, mm. mm. and Adderall. Nice. Yeah. Kind of same, but Focalin. Um, Focalin and Wellbutrin for me okay. right now. Nothing for anxiety. But my psychiatrist is like, we need to medicate your anxiety. Yeah. And I hate the side effects of SSRIs. Have you tried? <sighs> hold on. We've got a plane. We've got a plane. We have the, uh, <laughs> the screen door open. They're bringing our meds. Because it's normal. <laughs> they had to bring in a helicopter. <laughs> For some reason, they bring mine in iced. Yeah, it's weird. It just feel, it makes me feel important. <laughs> it's like a keg, yeah. <laughs> For, um, that's our idea of a kegger. <laughs> they just bring in like a huge... Have you, have you tried a variety of SSRIs? Because each one, I think, affects everybody a little bit differently. It's and true. there have been some that are a fucking nightmare yeah. for me and others that are like, this is it. This is the thing. I know. Yeah, I think I got to try more. I only did one and I was on way too much of it. And it made me so numb. But, oh man, that anxiety went, went away. That was a f- nice. that was a fun couple of years, Paul. I ha- you know I went to parties. I posted on Facebook. I mean, I was facing all kinds of fear, but I was not myself, and I didn't cry. Yeah. And I'm still making up for it. I haven't stopped crying <laughs> the past two years since I went off that medication. <laughs> Seriously, I cry every day. It's crazy, but it's good. It's, yeah, I was gonna say, is that necessarily a it's bad good? Thing? It's who I am. I've been like this my whole life. I, I'm a crier, you know, yeah. and and I'm okay with it. And it was weird to not be like that. I, I was like, where am I? You know, like I'm in a fucking Pixar movie right now and I'm just dead behind the eyes. <sighs> Inside Out. That's what took me down. That was a good one. Oh, great movie. You got to cry during it, you know. So going back to where where you were raised and then we'll, mm-hmm. we'll uh do the med thing yes um was there a moment when you felt like you got perspective on your town and that the approval there Mm. wasn't really that important or is it still important for you to go back there and feel Mm. like look at me it's not but it is a little you know it's so hard to shake it and then i get mad at myself because i go back and the things that that get garner approval in my town are not the same things that garner approval in other places you know like i've had some memes go viral and they only care about (laughs) creating humans you know it's like well i made a meme but yeah no i definitely get like very insecure when i go home about what i'm doing with my life the fact that i don't have a partner or children and it's like, that comes from me. That's in my head. Because as far as I can tell, my family doesn't care. My friends don't care. They like my little tweets and my Instagram stories. They're very supportive of my memes. And it's, it's just in my head of this thing of thinking that, you know, people, that there's, it's again, it's that, and it all goes back to childhood. It's like there's something about being in this town that triggers that same feeling of there's something wrong with me. So going back to the to the med thing, mm-hmm. what does your psychiatrist are you are you communicating with your psychiatrist that your anxiety is still there and that you would like to try something again, or have you both just decided uh, let's just try it without and see if life is doable? 
My experience with psychiatrists, and maybe this is unique to me, has never been with me saying that I want medication. It's always been with them gently guiding me towards it. Okay. Um, and me resisting the whole way. Okay. So that would say how, that's how I feel about SSRIs right now is like, I'm, I'm done with them. I did not like the side effects. How many did you try? One. And it's a very, it's a one that a lot of my friends are on and love. So, okay. But, um, but should I say what it is? Sure. It was, I just never want to scare. I'm always afraid that I'll scare someone away from trying it. The, I think as long as there's the caveat that each person responds differently yeah. to one med that may save a person's life yeah. sends another person into insomnia and night sweats and et cetera, oh, the et cetera. night sweats is yes. that's probably from medication. It can be. Oh my God, my, I can't even. But a lot of times feel. they will go away after a couple of months. A lot of times it's just your body acclimating to something. But I'm not trying to sell anybody on meds, but one of the things that I think needs to be considered is what are the side effects of not being on meds? Yeah. Yeah. Is it that you can't get out of bed, that you think about suicide, that you can't f- become part of communities or form bonds with people? It, you know, which is worse, that or, uh, you know, Ooh, your I, mouth gets a little dry. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Like, oh, I, I sweat in my sleep a little bit. It's like, yeah, yeah you also have a life now. <laughs> you know, like you weren't sweating in your sleep before because you were never like leaving your bed. Right. So you had nothing to sweat about. And, and, and this isn't... T- it's true. Anxi- with anxiety come, like with a bigger life comes more anxiety too. That's another thing. Yes. And I think that is best dealt with through therapy and stuff like that. I'm a big believer in the one-two punch of talk therapy and support groups. Actually, it'd be a one-three punch. And if necessary, meds. But um, when when people take the idea of meds off the table, Mm. it always bums me out a little bit because that could be the thing that brings them to quote unquote normal. Yeah. Just like insulin with a with a diabetic. I know. And People are so afraid to try something different outside of what you know. And this is something that I have come to that I, I will throw my family under the bus over is like the a resistance to medication. Um not so much like they're not like Scientologists or anything, but mm-hmm. just an overall resistance to medication that I internalized that made me for all of my 20s say, oh, medication? No, not for me. Like, I'm not that bad. And it's like, you don't need to be that bad. You don't need to be dying. And it's not bad. It's like... It's not bad. It's just like, fix the problem. You have a headache? Take Tylenol. People... I hate this when people when people are martyrs or stoic about it. It's like, I have a headache. We'll take Tylenol. No, no. It's, so you just want to complain. Yeah, exactly. And people do that with mental health all the time. No tolerance. I will cut people like that out of my life. Wow. I, I told a person... Every time we talked on the phone, he was talking about how depressed he was. And, you know, I suggested some courses of action yeah and he's like no i don't want to be somebody that take takes meds and i said well what's the side effect of not you're depressed all the time and um he's like yeah you know that's just it is and i said after three or four more of these phone calls um i 
got to draw a boundary here because uh, all you do is talk about how depressed you are, but you don't want to do anything mm-hmm. about it. And um, honestly, this is not the, a good foundation for a friendship. Wow. A boundary? Yeah. You got to Google that. Yeah, just like a, here's a line. Oof. You know, then I'm then I'm drawn. So, they're so hard. Have you? Oh, they're brutal. Always been able to a, draw them? God no. Okay. I caught somebody stealing in my house one time, <laughs> and I couldn't confront them because I was so afraid of confrontation. Oh God, that's so relatable. So support groups help me get to that place. Yes, yes. Support groups is another thing that I think people are terrified to try, and I hear it all the time. And 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 I relate because I was terrified to try support groups, and I was terrified to try medication, and both of those things. Saved my life at different times. So Talk about that. Um, about medication saving my life? Both of them. Um, well, I have... paint as much detail sure. as you can so the listener and I yeah. can feel what it was like to be in your shoes in that moment, emotionally, physically, yeah. what your thoughts were, everything. Sure. Um, so... One, one thing that I that took me to a really dark place, one of my addictions was drinking. And um, I definitely d- it like took off in college because I felt I, I was so I went to this huge school in a big city far away from everyone. And it was like really college is so hard. My yes. my co-host of my podcast and I, and I always say this, like what a difficult difficult time and and people don't realize it at the time but it's um, the perfect storm of everything if you have mental illness it's when it's rearing its head yes or at least increasing to its peak oh my god the pressure of school school and this is the last this is the launching point for real life life and and also like you have to figure out what are you going to be right you you 18 year old child what are you going to be with your entire life? What a crazy thing to put on kids. It's like, who cares? Go be a plumber for a year and then become a DJ. Oh, and by the way, this is the moment where you have to find out what kind of self-discipline you have. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> and None. None is what I learned in college. I learned it very quickly. I learned it on day one when I ate a whole box of cereal the first time I went grocery shopping. And that was it. I was like, this is my life. I can't have cereal. I'll eat the whole box. I'm still like that, by the way. Vodka became cereal. It was like, I mean, alcohol for alcohol was the first thing. Alcohol fucked up my life a lot. I'm so sorry. No, we can swear. Uh, Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The beast is out. No, that'll be the only swear I say. Um. I always live as if, like, my grandma might be listening. Uh, she's 101, so that she's probably And not. that makes for a terrific podcast. What? My, yeah. A podcast? Oh, that my grandma yes. can listen to. Yes. Uh, and pretending then that- a very nice Jewish man <laughs> came over to me and proposed. <laughs> Every podcast. Um, okay, wait. What was I saying? Um... Uh, drinking, drinking, yes. drinking, drinking. Why, why it, it fucked up my life, but it also, it gave me a lot of things. It helped me connect with people mm-hmm. and it helped get rid of social anxiety, which was such a crippling thing that I still deal with. And, um, and man, I became the life of the party. It was like, um, it was like magic. 
you put this thing in your body and all of a sudden all of my concerns, my fears, uh, my anxieties disappear and I'm talking to everyone and I'm dancing and I'm friends and everyone loves me and it's like a dream and then it really just kind of comes all crashing down. Um, I couldn't control my drinking from like very early on and it always felt like once I started drinking, the night didn't end until I got blackout. So what would a spiral look like? In one night? Whatever, just... What would a spiral... What, what, what are the bottoms? The bottom was... Um, I moved to New York. I was waiting tables. Uh, my, my morning shift was at 11 a.m. and I had to drink... I had to drink to start work and it's really hard to find a liquor store that's open before 11 a.m. So I'm like going, getting sparks, not to date myself, but sparks, light, throwing that in my bed, trying to drink as many of those as I can to get through my shift. Like very heavily physically addicted to alcohol. And I noticed that right away. Like I, I know I became aware of that and was like very freaked out by it. Um, that it was like I would cr- physically crave alcohol. Mm-hmm. And you know that that's not a good look. <laughs> you know, like that's not, no guy's out on a date with a girl whose like hands are shaking because she hasn't had her gin and tonic. And you're like, it's Tuesday. <laughs> wow, this girl seems like fun. <laughs> she's, got, she's got delirium tremens. <laughs> DTs I was, are, are I, a good look on a on a uh, Auburn. <laughs> Thank you so lady. much. They matched my hair. <laughs> the curls. I am normally of curls the, bouncing. The red on the tip of your nose perfectly <laughs> matches your hair. It's true. I was so red. I was so red. Everything about me, my my face was always red, and and I just I was a drunk. I was a little twenty five year old, you know, complete drunk so what happened um i didn't want to i I'm, am i missing any of the bottom uh, no i mean that's a pretty we mentioned the curls bouncing with the dts yeah. <laughs> that's my main bot it was very yeah shirley temple hair kind of thing um no it is there a, a makeup, it went on it is, went on is there a makeup foundation called the dts <laughs> it covers up the yellow <laughs> oh my god the yellow oh god yeah, I was 25. I, I my whole life revolved around drinking and getting alcohol. I, I I had on my way home from work, I would buy like a carton of wine and drink it on the street. It was like such a boring small life. It wasn't it wasn't fun for anyone and um and it was sad. And even at like the age of 25, um or I was like I knew this is not good. This is not what I want. And I knew people who were sober because I worked, um, I had worked in a comedy club mm-hmm. as a waitress, so I knew comedians. And people with long-term sobriety have this way of like, they emanate this kind of magic. And I picked up on that really quickly, and I, was, I became fascinated with sober comedians. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know their whole story. And I remember talking to Mike DiStefano, um, and, and I was obsessed with the fact that he didn't drink. I was like, you're just here. <laughs> you're just drinking tea. You're just around people. Like, what is your, what's your secret? And, you know, that was how I sort of found out about, you know, support groups. And there was like this secret world of sobriety. So 
I, I got the... I don't want to say I got the hookup, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only word that I can think of. And now. so did that, did that help you? So yes, um, I, it, it did. It did because I was so, I remember being like, I can never, I can never go to like a meeting. I can never, exp- I can never open up about myself because I'm, I, I thought, you know, you, you think you're, I thought I was so different and so tortured and like people people don't understand like i need to drink because i have these dark thoughts about the world ending <laughs> it's like no everyone does you yeah. know and the drinking just makes those thoughts worse and makes the anxiety worse and the depression worse and the depression would get so bad that i got to points where i like didn't want to live anymore so i you know i i i went to a meeting i told my therapist i started going to therapy first that was my first self care and then I remember the day that I said to my therapist, and it was, um, which I, it was eight years ago today, actually, mm-hmm. was my um, May 7th, 2010, was, was when I was like, I'm an alcoholic. And I went, and my therapist uh, called her son, who was, a, uh, had many years sober, and was like a very eccentric gay man and he came and picked me up after therapy and took me to my first meeting did he pick you up in a horse and carriage <laughs> i wish no did he come out of the ceiling i was on like a- where's my horse and carriage was he lowered from the ceiling on a silver moon <laughs> a half no but his name his name i i i feel like i may be blo- like i don't want to break anyone's anonymity but his name was fern it's perfect. That is, that's pretty I don't even know, name. I don't know if he's real except that I, I've checked in Google before and I, I have an email from him. Like he followed up as people do in support groups. They follow up, they see how you are, they care about you and they teach you, they, they taught me how to like love myself again. By the way, about three minutes ago, I have headphones on and she doesn't and uh, I let a very small fart go. <laughs> And I thought because I couldn't hear it, you couldn't hear it. And then I realized, oh, she doesn't have headphones on. I definitely did not hear it. Good. Because I didn't see your facial expression change. So I thought, no, I'm all good. And then I thought, you know, this is this is a podcast about honesty. Uh, yeah. Let's. The madness in our head and in our bowels. And in our bowels. <laughs> Why not? Um, so was there a moment in this support group where you felt like, you had found some type of relief mm. that where you didn't have to turn to drinking to feel a sense of relief. And, and how did that, what form did that take? Was it the people in the support group? Was, was it doing some type of writing or connecting to people or what, what help us understand? It was everything. It was the perfect situation. It was like this, very like almost seems like he really did wander out of the forest man has picked you up and takes you to this building that you would never think to go inside because like what is this building and then you go up some stairs and then you go in this little room and it's kind of almost like being in a school and people are sitting in a circle and they're like eight people that you would never think would be together and you're like wait what why are you here and you're here? This doesn't make any sense. And we're in this room and like we're off the grid and it's so weird. And then I just felt like I knew, I knew automatically like, oh no, these are my people. This makes perfect sense. Like we all 
are like we're all here because we can't cope with life the same way other people do and and we just need help and there was something so comforting about knowing that all of these other people they all looked so different from each other and they were mostly like older we're just like i need help and like we needed help for the same thing and it it just kind of i don't know it just i don't know if i'm describing it well no i think it makes total sense to me and i and then there was much. something that clicked in my head and then people started, I wasn't going to share, but I, you know, love mm-hmm. a chance to talk and people were sharing their stories and everyone's story was really different, but every single one I related to. Mm-hmm. And that was a weird feeling. And did you relate to their feelings or the way they drank? I related to the way they drank and I had tried so hard for so long to hide it from people. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed. Because drinking was like so shameful, and I did, I did, I did the most embarrassing things that I still can't believe I did, you know. And any any you'd like to share? I mean, I pee, I used to pee in other people's beds. Okay, I did it twice, but that's too many times. Yeah, that's too many times because you'd that's, just be so blackout drunk, you'd lose control of your bladder. Yeah, yeah, that happened twice. I mean, it rarely happened in my own bed because it was like I would get so drunk that somebody else would have to take me home and at that le- and that started to happen like frequently um but you know just I was ashamed of like oh god just things I'd said to people and and things that now that I look back on it it's like nah no one really cares you know but in the moment it felt I just felt like I felt like such a piece of garbage. That's the other thing, too, that's so funny about untreated alcoholism is the shame, the, you know, the mistakes. Can you the, drink over it? Uh, not only that, but they're all related to self-obsession. Mm, yes. The truth is nobody no, is really God thinking about the stupid cares. thing we said five years ago. They're busy thinking about themselves. No. The resentment you have at the other person, know. you know, you're you're the one that's holding on to that. I know. Onto it. That person isn't even thinking about that I know, event but anymore. But let me tell you, I know. But I did go back to the comedy cellar five years after I got sober, and the bouncers were like, "Oh, where have you been?" And I was like, "Fuck." Like, you know, when someone looks at you in a way where you can tell that they know all kinds of crazy things that you've done. Yeah. So some people don't forget, but most people don't care. And most people want to forgive. At least the people that I want in my life want to forgive somebody. Mm. They just, I think, want to know that it is reciprocated and that there's some respect there so that if you do apologize to them, that they're willing to walk through that door. You just need to open it for them. It's so true. And people were so much more receptive to amends, which is like the apologies part mm-hmm. of some support groups. People were much more receptive to that than I expected. I I think that's another thing that happens when you're in a, in a spiral of alcoholism is you lose complete touch with reality. You do. And you, and you think it's dramatic. Yes. That, that you would, because people would say that. Yes. But 
when you sit down with somebody and yeah. you do your writing and you read it to them, yeah. that is when you realize, yeah. oh my God, that's so off base. That's so filtered through my own narcissism and yeah. fear and I know. my negative self-beliefs. And uh, I think everyone should go to a support group for the experience of realizing like you're not special. Because as kind of brutal as that sounds, it's the most comforting thing. It's like, and I remember realizing that in that room was just like, oh no. Because you think like you're special in a bad way too. Right. It's like, I'm toxic. That's right. how I felt. I'm toxic. Yes. Don't come near me. I'll poison you. And I, I don't feel that way about myself yeah. now. Like I still struggle with self-loathing, but I know that I'm not like a piece of right. garbage. I, I like to think of it as we discover that we are special in a different way. Yeah. It's not that I'm better than other people, but I have a special purpose in life yeah. because I'm one of many. You know and, what? Yeah. It, sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, no, uh, I keep just, talking about myself. So we're, uh, we're. It's great. They, can, they cancel each other out. It's great. And, and like, yeah. And, and I forget what I was going to say. So I interrupted you for no reason, but good talk. Um, <laughs> about the about the being special, thinking oh, yeah, that we're yeah, yeah. terminally ne- that unique. It, you're right. It's not. It's not even that I'm not special as a person. It's like, oh no, you are. You're my 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 tweets and like my, who I am as a person is special. It's like my problems. My uh, problems are not special. Yes. Every single problem that I have, there's billions probably of other people who have the same problem, and that no matter how many problems you have, there's something so. So comforting about that. It is. It's like we're on the t- Titanic together. <laughs> and it's it's why also sometimes in a, in a support group, somebody who's new will begin talking about all of these things they're struggling with that they think are unique, and that mm-hmm. people will start nodding their head and laughing. Yeah, and they may think that we're laughing at them, mm-hmm. but. You know, as they soon find out, we're laughing with them because we're just like them or we used to be just like them. Yeah. And that to me, that feeling of community is so, uh, it's such a muscle relaxer. There's something about support groups that are very conducive to laughter because laughter comes from a place of pain. Yeah. And that was, that was another thing that kept me in support groups. Um, was the laughter and the levity that I wasn't expecting. I thought everyone was just going to be walking around like, I can't drink anymore, it sucks, which is part of it, but a very small part, surprisingly small part. And it tends to mostly be people who are new. New. I remember when I had like six months off alcohol walking around Union Square with a friend and I saw that pretzels, I saw like a pretzel stand and I just started sobbing hysterically because I was like, I can never have a pretzel without a martini. Like some in my head, you have to have like pretzels and martinis together. And it's such an, such an insane thing to be upset about, you know? But my friend, she was like, Oh my God, I know. Like, but it's okay. Yeah. And you don't have to wet the bed again. At least not, not because you're too drunk. Yeah. Just for fun. Just for fun. (laughs) Um, Just if you're mad at someone, I don't know. Did you want to talk about the food uh, stuff at all, or is that just kind of the the, the same as the alcohol thing, just a, a way to cope that you kind of bottomed out on? Mm. Yes, but like, yeah, food is tough. Food is really tough. Because yeah, um, you don't need alcohol, but you need food. You need food, and um, and food was my first addiction. Food was like 
my first escape when I was a kid. I was for sure like a food a food addict. Um, you ate rags, right? <laughs> yeah, I told you I had suck, a rag. Suck on them. That was a weird thing to open. Break them. Break them yeah. down. So I used to walk around with a rag in my mouth, but I did. You and were like a tiny Molotov cocktail. <laughs> Um, it is kind of like that. I mean, that those are just like early manifestations to me of, of addiction, just like compulsive. Self-soothing. 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 Ugh. But yeah, food, food was tough. Um, I, I, I forced myself to become bulimic, um, against all odds, um, because I, I couldn't throw up as a kid I was like not a throw my mom was always like you're so you never throw up it's great you like don't have a gag reflex and um so you achieved your dreams which is yeah yeah my, you reach for the surprised. stars and the stars were in the back of your throat <laughs> I really did I was like I'm gonna make this happen <laughs> and, and what did your mom say um I don't remember w- was she what was her view of your bulimia oh my parent oh um the bulimia didn't start until college, and um, man, people really don't want to talk about that one. That's an easy one to get away with because nobody wants to address it. So they'll really bend over backwards to pretend that they don't know what's going on, or they just don't notice. And the toilets get clogged a lot. Mm-hmm. I always have uh, broken capillaries in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you guys don't. I, I actually play guitar with my knuckles, so that's why they're so callous. <laughs> Be right back. Got to go to the bathroom for 45 minutes <laughs> for some reason. Coincidentally, yeah. after I ate nine plates after, of turkey. Yeah. What do you mean? Uh, problem. It People didn't want to address that one. Um, and uh, But also, I was really secretive about it. I, w- I did a, you know, bulimics, every, every, addicts. Bulimia is just an addiction. I've learned this as I've gotten older. I used to think of my alcoholism and my eating disorder as very separate. And as I get older, I just see them as two sides of the same coin. It's just all ways to control discomfort or yeah. to attempt to control discomfort to avoid it. And it just brings the comfort, exactly. discomfort in a different package. Exactly. It makes your problem worse. It isolates you from people and it's addictive. And that seems to always be my pattern. And it was the same thing with the bulimia was that I would say like, okay, you can just do this once. And then I would be off in like, you know, spending three, four days like locked in my, in my apartment, just like binging and purging. Mm. And I spent a lot of early sobriety binging and purging, which is not something that I'm proud to say because during that time I was for sure like going to support groups and talking about how good it was to be sober. And then I would go home and, but that's not a lie. No, I know. It was, you Ooh. had made progress. I had made progress. I had made progress and and I'm glad that I that I got through that point. You right. know, I'm I, I no longer have to binge and purge every yeah. single day because I don't feel the immense amount of pain that I did at that time in my recovery. Yeah, it's to me it's all about baby steps and mm. one and how can you be compassionate to yourself while moving forward mm. and taking actions? To, to better your life totally. without shaming yourself. Self-compassion is so hard for, it's so hard for so many people. Yeah. And especially you, because you're a terrible person. I so, know. I, I mean, know. deep down to your core. I know. I'm evil. Yeah. I gotta do something about it. Now, what a sweet, what a sweet soul, uh, 
you you are. You were just this Thanks. sensitive, beautiful little kid that that um, has found her way through all these shitty coping mechanisms and um, has come out the the other side. Not that you're fixed or anything, but it sounds like oh, no, you have discovered <laughs> a new world. The doctor says I'm perfect now. <laughs> yeah. That you've, di- you've discovered a new, that there are other tools to cope with discomfort and, and pain. And I've, I've found a tremendous sense of positive community and positive things have come into my life as a result of having gone through this pain. Which is a weird. It's weird, but it. it I'm grateful for it. it. It's amazing. Yeah, my whole life. My whole life. Everything that I have is because of recovery and like taking care of myself and 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 everything ha- like has come as a result of that. But oh, it's hard. It's hard. Yes. It's hard, especially at the beginning. But then it's it. It just becomes life. I guess. Share a moment before we wrap up mm. where you felt like you had changed and you felt, I don't know, proud of yourself or where you could see distance between who you were now and who you had been when you were at your most lost and in the most pain. When somebody reaches out for me to me for help, I find that incredibly moving that I could help somebody else, like that somebody would turn to me, hot mess May, oh, West Village Wilkerson. (laughs) Read into that whatever you want. I drank there a lot. Um, (laughs) Could, uh, could, could help someone else get sober or just I don't know feel better about themselves or or whatever and it's 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 very strange but it makes me realize that I have come a long way I have yet to meet a person in a support group who is new that that is on their radar that they now Mm -hmm. can have a sense of meaning and purpose in their Mm -hmm. life using their past pain or even present pain to help others and that that the byproduct of that will be a sense of meaning purpose and peace in Mm. their life and that to me speaks of the heart of addiction and the addict brain that it, it it just it has no sense of others and community and being one of many as a good thing it sees those as threatening as threatening yeah it's so true God, and there's still a part of me that wants to isolate myself from other people. Man, do I get that. Ugh, isn't it kind of like a drug? It is, because yeah. it's predictable. Yeah, There aren't many surprises. There's no surprises when I'm by myself for the entire weekend playing golden tea or guitar or whatever, but I also miss out on those moments that you... Rem- I won't remember the weekend I played guitar for eight hours a day when I'm on my deathbed, but I will remember the time I was at lunch with my three friends and we laughed so hard at such and such, or I did something else. But in that moment, it's just, I want to be alone. I know. In that it's predictable. 
It's so, yeah, it is. It really is like that crawling back into a place where I have control over everything. Um, and I feel like I can just like relax. Do you, do you think it comes down to a matter of trust that we just don't trust that the universe is going to take care of us if we get outside our comfort zone? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I always think everything must come from history, right? So that's why I feel like a lot of this social anxiety from me stems back from childhood. I think it's like you go to one or two little mm -hmm. birthday parties where, you know, you kind of have to sit alone because mm -hmm. no one talks to you and it. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it gets in your head and then you're like, you're, go you're an adult and you're going out with all your friends who like you, but you're still like, what if they, you know, I come back from the bathroom and then they pretend not to know me, right. you know, and it's like this crazy little voice <laughs> and you're just like, what, and why it, would that happen? But it still makes you be like, all right, guys, I gotta go. <laughs> like, see you later. Um, because it, 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 it's, it's fear, I guess, of like being hurt. Uh, I think that, think that's it. Oof! Did we figure it out? We figured it out. We've wrapped it up. We've wrapped it do up. Do you want to tell the others? I'll go make sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, I'll go tell them. <laughs> uh, May, thanks for for coming. And uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find you on Twitter? Where can people find the podcast? Um, do you well, have a website? Uh, no. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Shut Up May. Uh, I still have some work to do with self love. And, and it's M A Y. M A Y. Shut up, M A Y. And, or um, you can listen to my podcast with Alyssa Lynn Paris. It's called Crazy in Bed, and we talk about mental health. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. More a sweet soul. Uh, I just love having conversations like that where it's like one minute, it's, you know. Just so vulnerable, and um, next minute we're laughing and cracking fucked up jokes. It's, it's, it's the it's really the vibe that I I, I wanted when I started this podcast uh, seventy two years ago. <laughs> Did I mention that I'm eighty years old? Sometimes I feel like I'm eighty years old. I'm going to read some surveys. Uh, you know what? Before I do that, uh, we could really use some financial support. Um, people uh, have some people have been bailing from uh, Patreon, and I totally understand people have valid reasons for doing that. Um, and and PayPal as well. We've been uh, losing some people on PayPal, and things are pretty tight. And uh, it would it would just really be awesome. Um, if you can afford it, to help the show out financially. And I hate having to do this. I hate having to do this. But, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the realities. And um, so if you could do that, that would be awesome. The links to all the different ways you can help the podcast are under the show notes for, uh, for this episode. And, um, yeah, there you have it. Oh, I should also mention that if uh, you want to hear the back catalog of this podcast, I believe like uh, free episodes go all the way back like a year or two. But beyond that, uh, you need to go to Stitcher Premium and it's five bucks a month and you get episodes all the way back to the first episode from March of 2011 and the back catalogs of a ton of other great podcasts and all kinds of content, stand-up albums by people. Um, so, yeah, 
that was another financial decision that, uh, I needed, I needed to make and that I didn't want to do. I wanted to keep all the episodes free, but, um, that's the reality. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by, oh, another way you can help the podcast? Fill out the surveys, especially the happy moments and the awfulsome moments. Those are like Christmas to me. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a, a woman who co- calls herself, I am so fucking codependent. I edited this survey like five times so I wouldn't look like an idiot. She is... uh Straight, in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she writes, I don't know if it counts as dysfunctional, but my older brother was addicted to heroin when I was a teenager, causing lots of turbulence in our family, and he went to jail for a few years. I felt like I had to be perfect to make up for his mistakes and would often feel the need to be the family fixer so everyone else would feel better. Um, yeah, that's at the very least slightly dysfunctional. And... Um, it's, it's it's pretty rare that you see something like that in a totally healthy family, but um, you know there there are exceptions. She's never been sexually abused, uh, never been physically abused, and she's not sure if she's been emotionally abused. Um, I would say she has, and uh, I'm going to read why. She writes, I feel really embarrassed sharing this because I'm afraid it's stupid and I'm overreacting, and I also don't know if this is valid or not. I know lots of people have bad roommates, but I had a really fucked up situation my sophomore year in college with two of my roommates who made my life hell. If this were any other relationship other than a friendship, I would have no doubt saying it was emotional abuse, but since we were not romantically involved, it feels probably invalid. And I have an insecurity that it was a very bad and selfish idea for me to even share this in light of worse things people go through every day. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it again. It's not a contest. It's about the feelings that were left in the the wake of it. Uh, My roommate, who was previously one of my best friends, began ignoring me, not even looking up when I entered the room, never using my name, giving me the silent treatment other than some snippets of rude remarks in a clipped tone. I can't explain it, but I'm sure she blasted the TV during the evening hours because it was right against the other side of my wall, and she knew I had trouble sleeping and had depression and insomnia. I had confided in her before about my social anxiety, so she knew I probably wouldn't confront her about these things. It might seem like I'm projecting, but I'm sure she did it on purpose. I wasn't allowed to use, quote, her dishes that she bought on, uh, that she bought or the TV remote because she bought the TV technically. I tried to offer to bring some of the things we would share, like dishes, TV, fans, etc., but she moved in early and insisted she'd brought everything already, only to cut me off from any access to it. She would remove the light bulb to the lamp she brought for the living room when I wasn't home so I couldn't sit in the living room. That is one of the most fucked up things, right? I mean, that is so clearly... I don't know what the word would be. Passive, aggressive, selfish. I mean, fuck. Removing the light bulb. I don't even want you to use my light bulb. Wow. Um, 
I had a near constant stomach ache and obvious anxiety, and I already have anxiety anyway. I would feel sick on the bus rides home and sometimes stay half the night in the library just so I wouldn't have to feel that icy hatred coming off her as I walked into what felt like only her apartment. She turned our other roommate, my other former best friend, against me. She never gave me a reason for why she treated me this way, and it came completely out of the blue. Looking back, I should have stood up to her, but I wasn't brave enough. She even tried to get future roommates to believe I was crazy and stealing her stuff, even though I never did such a thing. I feel like abuse among friends is really not talked about to the point I'm not even sure it counts. But it definitely affected my entire life and my mental and physical health the way I imagine other types of abuse does. I was considering suicide by the end of the term and had fallen into a deep depression. I almost dropped out of university. I guess I just want other people out there to know that they are not alone if they've ever been through something like this, whether it, quote, counts or not. Thank you. This is a really important survey because um, I think this is something that that people deal with. And oftentimes the, the place we go to in our brain is, what did I do wrong? And sometimes we did do something wrong and we need to look at it. Um, or sometimes we need to have a conversation and say, hey, man, what's going on? It feels like you're giving me the cold shoulder or, um, um, you know, can I borrow your light bulb? Uh, any positive experiences with them? Uh, well, of course, she was my very good friend freshman year of college, the second ever friend I made, so there were some good times. However, there were some red flags that she was going to be a toxic person, like how she would get mad at me and give me the silent or hot cold treatment for hanging out with other friends. My other roommate would put me down for things I enjoy, like music and singing. I'm a good singer. That is one thing, probably the only thing I can confidently say about myself in the positive. I have won solo competitions and been in many audition-only choirs. Whenever I would sing even a line from my favorite song, A Room Away, she'd tell me to shut up. Singing was my only release for a long time, and it hurt that my friends weren't supportive of it. Darkest Thoughts when I'm really down, I fantasize about getting hit by a car and everyone rushing to my side to tell me how much they love me. I don't truly want to die or be seriously hurt. I just want an outpouring of love without having to ask for it. And I want to take a break from my life for a few weeks. I like being sick because it's an excuse to drop out of life for a few days or weeks. I'm ashamed of myself because I often think about how much I don't want to look like my mom. She's a wonderful person, which only makes it worse that I feel this way. She's a larger woman with really big breasts, and I always resented that I got that gene from her. I can't find bras that fit that aren't beige or black or incredibly expensive. She and I both also have double chins, which I hate about myself and sometimes resent her for passing on to me. I love my mom, but I do not want to look like her. What a horrible thing to say. Who says that about their own mother? I also don't want a marriage like my parents when I grow up. They are so clearly not happy, but stuck with each other, like other, uh, like lots of other old couples are. It makes me wonder if love really lasts for anyone. 
darkest secrets. This is also silly, but I'm 23 years old and a virgin. I've had all types of oral sex, but I've never had penis and vagina sex, and I am a cisgender heterosexual woman, so this stuff is pretty much expected of us. I last hooked up with a guy nearly three years ago, and I feel like such a loser. I also have a binge eating disorder and tend to hide behind food and my body to avoid dating. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Like I previously mentioned, I am a virgin. I'm terrified of penetration. I can't even masturbate and I've never had an orgasm. Sometimes I worry I'm physically broken. When I tried to get my first pap smear, I began sobbing while the doctor was checking my breasts for lumps and couldn't ultimately go through any sort of penetration. I don't have any sexual trauma, so I'm not sure why this is. I dream about having a loving relationship and also have sex and masturbation feel good. I want to, I want to rid myself of internalized sexism and not think about how fat and ugly I must be to other people. I honestly want someone to eat me out for as long as it takes for me to orgasm with no pressure, but I know that's asking a lot. I think it'd be fun to role-play Harry Potter or something like Fifty Shades of Grey. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my brother, I want to have a relationship with you, but I'm nervous even being in the room with you since we pretty much haven't talked since you became addicted to drugs. I forgave for that. I forgive for that, stealing $400 from me that I'd saved as a kid kind of tearing apart the family, but honestly, your political views are so fucked up, I don't know if we can ever be friends. You make me feel unsafe because you don't believe sexism or racism exist. You constantly talk over me, interrupt me, and assume you're more of an expert than I am. I have a degree in social work and I'm pursuing a master's in social work. You've never gone to school or been interested in social justice work, so why do you insist on thinking you know more than me about homelessness or mental health when you really know nothing? I want you to know I am smart and an expert in my field, but I can't stand up to you. Why can't you admit that I might actually know what I'm talking about and for fuck's sake, stop interrupting me? Uh, well, I can tell you as a recovering addict, uh, an alcoholic, it, it sounds like he is in his disease. Uh, you know what they say? Um, one of the things that's so true is uh, unrecovered addicts, we're long on arrogance and short on responsibility. And that's a, that's a coping mechanism for the fear of, of the untreated addict, the fear that we have inside um, is, you know, we puff the chest out, we act like know-it-alls, or we completely isolate. And um, I, I would try not to take it personally, uh, but I, I would still stand up for yourself and say, you know, if you want to have a conversation, you're going to have to let me talk. And um, yeah, I mean, it, he sounds toxic and until he gets better, does some inner work on himself, um, I would I would just uh, keep him at a distance. What, if anything, do you wish for? To find love and be happy. I know life will always have its challenges, but I'd really like a partner who will never leave. I want to have a fulfilling career. 
Uh, have you shared these things with others? Counselors mostly. I have shared some things with friends. Family knows about my depression and anxiety, but not my eating disorder because they would probably think I'm not skinny enough to have an eating disorder. The times I have shared have gone well. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good, because I was pretty numb before this. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Counseling is amazing. I truly cannot recommend it enough. And if you get a shitty counselor, try everything in your power to find someone else because it's so worth it. I personally don't think there's any shame at going your own pace in life, whether that's romantically, academically, or any other way. I think every person has worth and everyone matters no matter how small you think they are. Uh, No matter how small you think you are. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Uh, please consider having Brene Brown as a guest. Yeah, I've, I've reached out, uh, to, to Brene. Um, she doesn't, we don't really have the, the, the budget to fly her in. And, um, I've considered, uh, flying to record her, to visit her and record her, but her schedule's so busy and, um, it's just kind of hard to pin her down, but that would be. That would be awesome to, you know, get a date on the books and record her because she's amazing. This is an awful moment uh, filled out by, what the hell is this one called? Caffeinated Dissonance. At, that, by the way, that is my favorite eclectic coffee shop. Um, <laughs> they just have uh, Philip Glass playing as soon as you walk in. This is an awful moment. I was hospitalized after taking myself to a local hospital due to suicidal ideation. I take zinc, and the physician was so inattentive that he diagnosed a dose of zinc two or three times higher than I normally take. For those of you who don't know much about zinc, it upsets your stomach a lot. So that high of a dose had me hunched over in a lot of pain, very sick to my stomach. When I went to the nurse's station asking for a hot water bottle or something like Tums, they told me I had to wait a few days. It wasn't the weekend to see the attending. It was the weekend to see the attending physician. I was in a lot of agony, so I got very frustrated and begged them to uh, give me something as I couldn't stand up straight, to which they responded incredibly nasty, patronizing, and cruel. In all honesty, I forgot what exactly it was they said. I was quite a bit over-medicated there, but I remembered it provoked such a strong response in me as I also work in mental health. I helped to provide services one-to-one to those whom had developmental disorders, and it enraged me to be treated like a patient knowing that many people didn't speak up. So I did. I told the nurse that she shouldn't speak down to somebody like that simply because they were a mental health patient, and she could easily end up in the same place I currently was. I told her that on almost any other day, I was in her her position doing what she did, and that I wasn't much different than her simply because I had chronic pain and depression. I later apologized for being stern and using a short tone, not for what I said. I'm glad I did apologize, as the next week, when I went back to work, there was a patient who had uh, whom had autism spectrum disorder, but was also actively psychotic. So where did I end up helping them? Of course, in that same hospital. Walking into that hospital, as it was contract work I did through a local organization, and seeing that same mental health tech was priceless. 
Her jaw literally dropped and her face turned white. I didn't like the fact that I made her uncomfortable, but I do like the fact that I may have made her just uncomfortable enough to not treat others the same way, at least without thinking. Mental health patients, mental health techs, or both, we all deserve the same basic level of respect and humanity. I won't stand for anything less after that experience. What a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing. And, uh, Boy, the mental health system needs more people like you. One of the most common things I see in the uh, survey of uh, people who've been hospitalized is dealing with burnt out um, employees in those settings and the lowest moment of our lives being met with a lack of compassion or even annoyance is just really, really fucked up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Maha. And uh, she identifies as pansexual. She's 18. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused, not sure if she's uh, been physically or emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I think about how other people would react if I committed suicide. The little voice in my head tells me that no one would give a fuck, but the more rational voice in my head tells me people would be so upset, or at least I hope they would be. Sometimes I wish I could be like those cheesy movies where after a character has died, they're able to see all of the other things, all of the things people say about them, because the truth never seems to come out until something bad has happened. I think I just long to hear that someone appreciated me, or at least would miss my presence, because I never hear anyone say things like that, and I never get the impression that anyone feels that way about me. Darkest Secrets. When I was in high school, I was caught up in a hellstorm of different mental issues, one of which was severe depression, which led to the development of an eating disorder. My mom would give me money every day before school to buy my lunch, and every day I would keep the money and not eat lunch. The best part is that I would save up my money so that I could buy more weed, and then I would skip class to smoke because it helped my depression. For me, it was the perfect situation. I didn't eat, which helped my eating disorder worsen, And I, quote, fixed my depression by getting myself mildly addicted to marijuana. Another one of my biggest secrets is that I'm pretty damn gay. I identify as pansexual, but I'm definitely more attracted to women than other genders. I also live in the South, but in a relatively, quote, liberal city. My whole family is religious, and I consider myself to be very religious as well, but I see nothing wrong with being gay. My mother, however, is very passive-aggressively homophobic. Most of my friends are gay, but she only knows that a few of them are. Whenever we fight, she always makes homophobic remarks about them and later pretends she didn't say it or claims that's not what she meant to say. The most difficult thing is that I have to cancel dates and plans with my gay friends sometimes because even if I lie about what we're going to do, she is paranoid that they are going to, quote, turn me gay or try to harass me. Little does she know, however, that I've been flirting with one of my best friends, whom she is very fond of, for months now, and I can't wait to hook up with her and just think of how great it feels to be as gay as I want with my mother not able to do a damn thing about it. Sexual Fantasies 
when I was younger, I fantasized about being raped by a man. Something about it was so appealing to me because I believed that for someone to rape someone else, they had to want to have sex with someone so badly that they didn't care if the other person agreed or not, and I just wanted to feel wanted. Now that I am older, I constantly fantasize about having sex with other women. I'm so attracted to women that I think about how it would feel to be completely dominated by another woman. To have someone control every move I make in a sexual way is oddly appealing to me. Saying these things makes me feel really uncomfortable. When I read these things back, it makes me feel creepy and disgusting. Uh, I feel like no logical person dreams of being raped, but I guess that makes me even more fucked up. Now, what you shared is so incredibly common, and it's not a sign of being fucked up. That's, that's I think, one of the ways our brains deal with anxiety is sometimes we sexualize it. And, you know, a rape fantasy um, is essentially, to me, is, is, a, is a way of um, providing consent because you are choosing to fantasize about that you are actually not you are controlling the situation because you are choosing to fantasize about it whereas in real life um rape isn't about somebody being so turned on by you it that person is it's a form of violence and and degradation and it doesn't matter what it is in your fantasy, what it comes from or what it means. We can't control what turns us on. And so embrace it and don't feel shame about it. And it has nothing to do with um, that act in real life. Nothing. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Sometimes I wish I could tell my mom to wake the fuck up and pay attention to her children. Don't get me wrong. She's been a great parent but she's so oblivious to the things that are happening in our lives. You know, I got to say from the things that you have shared in here, in here, um, she does not sound like a great parent. And maybe you left, you chose not to fill in the stuff about positive experiences, but, um, Anyway, continuing, uh, she's a single parent, and when my father died, she sort of backed off and didn't pay much attention to the details of our lives. She doesn't know who most of my friends are. She has no clue what classes or clubs I'm in. She doesn't even ask about my grades when finals come out. Worst of all, she never tried to get me help for my mental illnesses. I lost a significant amount of weight in a few months, and she never asked why or considered that something was wrong. When I was hiding in the bottom of my closet in the dark, sobbing, she asked in the most annoying tone, are you fucking depressed or something? And then left my room. When she caught me smoking weed in my room one time, she freaked out on me for smoking and I snapped and told her I was trying to fix my depression since she could care less and all she did was, quote, ground me for a day and then never once mentioned what I told her. I just wished that she would be a little more involved considering she's the only parent I have and the rest of my extended family is too fucked up on their own to even try to keep in touch with my immediate family. You know, I think in the meantime... It would be great instead of playing the crazy game of trying to change your mom or get her to see the real you, find a family that will see the real you and, and you know, feel that love from them because there are people out there. Our tribe is out there. It's just a matter of finding them. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be successful 
uh, by my own terms and not by what everyone else wants for me. I wish to meet someone who cares so deeply for me that they just want to protect and love me for as long as they can. Most importantly, I wish to experience as much as I possibly can in this incredibly short life. Have you shared these things with others? No, my mother is too distant and caught up in other priorities to listen or care, and my friends have their own problems and don't care to listen to mine. I think you could use some better friends or have an honest conversation uh, with them where you just talk about what it is that you're feeling. And, you know, yeah. How do you feel after writing these things down? Strange. Writing them makes me so much more hopeful that things will change for the better, but it also makes me realize how fucked up things have been in my past. That's good, though. That means that you're waking up, and that's the first step. You know, I was just talking to a friend of mine from my support group about two hours ago, and he was sharing the the same thing that, you know, he, he was dealing with anger, and, you know, he's he's trying to get to the root of it, and... You know, he's, he's struggling, but I, I said to him, that's the important part is, is you're on the first step of getting better and starting to heal that stuff that's going on inside you. Um, instead of just going blindly through life, projecting your anger onto somebody else. Um, Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Life can be incredibly fucked up, but it can also be incredibly rewarding and amazing. And sometimes you have to deal with the shit before you can get to the good stuff. A fucking man. Uh, comments to make the podcast better. Uh, maybe give a more in-depth update on yourself at some point in each episode for a few minutes. I'm interested in how your life is going. Um, I... So appreciate that you are interested. I have a fear uh, that I talk too much about myself, um, that I am uh, a total narcissist, and that I'm going to bore people. Um, And I do find myself sometimes wanting to share things about my life, but then I get anxiety that I won't be able to express it, and... um, that, I don't know, that it won't go well. So here's an update. Uh, I'm in a relationship. We've been seeing each other for about uh, a month and a half, maybe two months. And uh, her name's Christina, and she's from Ecuador. We met through an online dating app, and I just really, really like her. And um, she's a little younger than me. She's 43. Um and I love her taste in music. I love her compassion. Um, I love going to eat. And I love, I don't know, there's just a, a connection that I felt uh, on our first coffee date. Um, just something in her eyes that I felt drawn to. And um, I just, it's just a good feeling being being with her it's i just really like it and so i'm trying to take it one day at a time and not go into that fear of she's going to get tired of me or i'm going to get tired of her or you know etc etc um i'm just i'm just enjoying it and it feels really good to be to be intimate with with someone not just physically but emotionally and that's 
that's kind of a new thing um, for me. And it's, I feel like I am benefiting from all the work that I've done in my support groups over the last 15 years. Um, and it makes me realize that it has been worth it because I was afraid of living a life where I could never connect my heart and my dick, for lack of a better word. Um, and I feel like I'm starting to be able to do that. And it feels pretty fucking cool. It feels pretty fucking cool. Uh, and then finally, this is a happy moment. And it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Veep is my warm blanket of funny. And she writes, I've been struggling with severe depression and anxiety since being discharged from the hospital two years ago. When I saw an episode of Colbert featuring Louis Black promoting a national comedy center in Jamestown, New York, I knew this was something me and my three brothers had to go check out together. We did a road trip at the beginning of October to the birthplace of Lucille Ball and spent the day looking at this incredible museum of comedy, watching clips that had gotten me through such trying times. The Simpsons, Carlin, Stan stand-up, veep clips, all of it displayed and enjoyed under one roof. And here I was, enjoying it with my three favorite funny people in my life, who have always managed to bring a smile to my face. As I sat on a couch and watched a clip of Rick Moranis practicing deep helmet breathing in space balls, I looked over to see them laughing at another exhibit with Larry David, and, I kid you not, a single tear streamed down my face. I had found my happy place. Comedy saved me from giving up. My brothers saved me from giving up. And here we were together under one roof sharing this experience together. As more tears started to fall, my middle brother saw this, came over, put his arm around me, and said the most perfect words at that very moment. You know, crying in a comedy museum would look really bad for them. Thank you for that. That's so... Just so fucking awesome on so many levels. Well, thank you guys for being listeners, supporting the show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And uh, if you're out there and you're feeling alone, that's your brain just being a dick. Um, you're not alone. There's tons of people that feel exactly the way you do. And it's just about finding your tribe. And uh, never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.